that uh, I could use as an example would be uh, St. Walburga's in Colorado. So uh, some of you are familiar with uh, the retired abbess. Uh, she wrote the book on, that we use for formation here, Mother Maria Thomas Bile. Uh, they were in the Boulder area when they first came over from Germany and founded the monastery. Uh, as Boulder increased its size and uh, became a larger city, they made the very difficult decision to relocate. And uh, they moved north to Virginia Dale. And that's where they have their monastery now. But the key thing is, uh, in order for a monastery to move, you have to have... Everybody in the community has to be heard. You have to have a super majority. And then everyone's committed to it. Uh, so it's not possible for the abbot or abbess just to say, yeah, I don't like it here. We've got this better thing over here. And the community doesn't want it. The community has to stay together. That's the key thing. So stability in a place is at the service of the stability of the community. That you, you live with the same brothers till you die. Uh, we work with the same people. So this is, uh, I think, an important understanding of stability of heart. Benedict and oblates have to be connected to a community. It's not possible to be a free-floating oblate any more than it is to be a free-floating Benedictine monk. And you can transfer your stability. We, we've had uh, oblates do that, several of them. Uh, it's also possible that if, if you're traveling, you can... If you're an oblate of another community, like St. Procopius, you can come to our meetings, right? That's possible. Uh, we, we can work on that just in the same way I can go to other Benedictine monasteries and get into choir. And uh, when I do visit other Benedictine monasteries, I'm, it's, it's easy now because I'm a, a superior, so they always put me with the, with the abbot. But uh, when I was not superior, uh, the first thing happens that you go into choir or you go into Stazio and you find out who, who made their vows when, and you get in line between the person who made vows before you and the person who made vows after. Uh, I'm not a member of their community, but as a Benedictine monk, I have a place there. And similarly, as oblates, you'd have a place in other meetings of oblates of other communities. You know, they, they would have their own customs and so on for how to make that work. But you know, another example would be, there's a couple um, whom we haven't seen in a while, but they're actually oblates of St. Leo's in Florida. And uh, they're, they're from the Chicago area originally, but they winter in Florida. So they made their oblations down there. But when they're up here in the summer, they, they come for meetings here, right? So, so that's, uh, but, you, but there has to be that connection to one monastery. And that in part is how we practice our stability and how we practice our obedience because we're connected to actual people. That's not negotiable. You know, if, uh, if the oblate director says we're gonna do X, um, that's an opportunity to practice some kind of obedience, to practice some kind of docility. So, um, and then ongoing conversion, I'll just say, uh, conversatio morum, uh, one of the ways of understanding this is that uh, monastic life takes time. Monastic spirituality is a slow process. We don't become fully fledged monks right away. And similarly, we don't expect that when you make your oblation that you're going to have all your ducks in a row today and from now on everything's going to be different. It's a pledge to continue changing. It's a pledge to continue working with God's grace through the tools given by the tradition. Uh, and it's the same for us as monks. Uh, we don't, uh, <laughs> there's a, a saying that I read in some book someplace 
that may come from English Benedictinism or Australian, but uh, uh, there's, uh, it's not the case that novices are no vices. <laughs> uh, in fact, we expect even you know, in first vows and in the solemn profession that the monk is going to have imperfections. That that's, the question isn't that the person be perfect. The question is whether the person is committed to changing and committed to working against the vices and working to acquire the virtues. So similarly in oblation, uh, we're looking for a commitment to ongoing conversion, an openness to change, openness to whatever God is offering. So the second definition of the monk in Benedictine terms comes from chapter one. Uh, there are two good kinds of monks, the anchorites and the cenobites. The anchorites who live alone are the advanced ones. And I'll just say probably that's not, that doesn't apply to most of us here. So we're going to look at the cenobites. The Cenobites live in a monastery under a rule and under an abbot. And so uh, this, again, is helpful for understanding what it means to be a Benedictine oblate. And you're connected to a monastery. You're connected, you, you follow the rule. So reading a little bit of the rule, reading commentaries on the rule, listening to podcasts on the rule, um, that is going to help give us ideas of how God is asking us to change. How God's asking us to live out our oblation. Uh, reading between the lines, trying to understand. Uh, I was just uh, talking to Martha and Miguel a moment ago how we read through the rule three times a year together and I comment on it almost every day. I never run out of comments. But part of that is because I've been in monastic life for 22 years and once you see how you try to apply the rule to actual circumstances, you get an insight into how wise St. Benedict was. You know? um, his, his writing is deceptively simple. So if you try to stay with it and keep thinking about it, pondering it, it's going to change the way you think about things, but it'll be a very slow process. And then finally, again, under an abbot. And so there is, again, this connection. It's, it's, not, it's not just a convention that you come and make your oblation before the prior of the community. It's a sign that he represents Christ in some way to the monks and then to the oblates in general. And if we had a separate oblate director who, who wasn't the superior, he would be a, another link in that chain. He would report to the abbot and you would report to him as it were. Uh, so it has this hierarchical imaging uh, because there's this natural hierarchy between God and ourselves, right? Uh, we're, we're always subordinate to God's intentions. And we image this for ourselves through incarnational means, through the hierarchy of the church, through the monastery, through the sacraments, and so on. Okay, um, so that's the kind of the background of the rest of what I'm going to say. But I've already kind of jumped ahead a little bit. Another thing I'd like to talk about is faith versus works. Um, this, is, this was obviously a big controversy a few hundred years ago, which in monastic time is really recent. Um, but it also goes back already to some debates that arose from uh, the teachings of St. Paul and St. James in the scriptures. And the reason I want to bring it up is because, again, uh, part of what I've heard in working with the, the, the previous novices, the mentors, and, and some oblates uh, over the past couple of years since I've re-taken uh, over the program is uh, 
that, again, there, there seem to be all of these obligations that, that we have. And I want to be careful that that doesn't become something that's discouraging or keeps people from coming to the meetings or something because they feel like they're not doing enough outside or doing enough to help the community or something like that. So I thought of putting this in terms of faith versus works because to me, the, the difficult problem again has to do with the larger cultural problem that we're an activist culture, that uh, we're, a, we're a can-do culture, you know. Um, uh, it's funny, again, being part of an international congregation, the, the reputation that we Americans have among the Europeans, for example, um, you know, sometimes our optimism can be a little grating for them. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, I remember one of the English abbots uh, who was visiting us, uh, we were talking about something or other, and, and he, he, he was a superior in the United States for a while, and uh, he had kind of came around to our viewpoint. He thought, well, wow, you know, Americans actually have this uh, optimism, this industry, <laughs> and, you know, when you propose something in the United States, the tendency is for monks to say like, yeah, yeah, okay, how can we figure out how to do this? And if you propose something in England, the, the response from the monks is like, oh, it can't be done. <laughs> and uh, I think variations on this exist on the continent as well. Uh, and it's just part of our different histories, different cultures and so on. So it's something that's very positive about Americans but it can also be a liability because it, it, it feels like things depend on us. If we don't do something about a situation, then we're not trying hard enough. Or if, if there really is something that can't be done, um, then we feel guilty about it when it may not be our, our problem. I read another, uh, uh, been reading the works of Edwin Friedman, who is uh, a rabbi and a family therapist. And, and his, I find his books really, really fascinating. And he, he was talking about how both in biology and in psychology, and, and he would also say in spirituality as well, because he's a, a rabbi, you can't get organisms to grow, you can't force them to grow. You can't force, you, you can't, he says you can't make a bean grow by pulling on it, right? Uh, it has to undergo a process, and the process takes time. And... You can help, you know, you can weed around the bean poles, you can manure them, you can uh, drive off the pests and so on, but you have to wait. It takes uh, several weeks to germinate and then it takes several more weeks before you've got ripe beans on, that can be picked and eaten. And there's simply nothing you can do to hasten the process. And it's a similar thing in our spiritual lives. Um, a lot of it is, is simply persevering. A lot of it is simply being faithful to the things that, that just, you know, keep us going, keep us focused on the goal. But a lot of the stuff that we could do might just be a distraction. The question, again, has to do with, uh, do I believe that God is actually setting the agenda here? And how would I know? How would I discern that? Or is the world setting the agenda by telling me I have to be doing something or other? Uh, maybe that there are things we have to do. And I, I actually hold a position of responsibility in the church as a cleric and as a, <coughs> an ordinary. And so I have a responsibility if there's a problem in say our congregation to intervene. I'm actually on the provincial council now this year. And so if there's a problem in the province, I do have a responsibility. If there's a problem in our province, 
you don't have a responsibility. Maybe if there's some secret, you know, uh, you're, you're aware of, of some, some abuse that's going on that no one else is aware of, maybe then you do have a responsibility to speak to someone in authority about it. Um, but I think if, if there's a question of, I'm not sure about this person's teaching over here, I'm not sure about this practice in this parish over here, um, it might not be your responsibility to say anything or do anything. Um, the first thing is to try to come to some peace of mind, to find the peace that Christ gives and not that peace that the world gives. So the world's peace is, is based on, I think, things like you know, threats. Um, so we have peace as long as there's a balance of powers in the world. Um, we can have peace when we feel good about ourselves because we're accomplishing a lot. Um, so another aspect of Benedictine spirituality that uh, is, is coming for us as a monastery, we haven't experienced it yet, but you see it if you go to more established monasteries, is that all of us get to a point in life where we, we can't intervene anymore because we just don't have the energy. We're, we're too old for it. And one of the good things about Benedictine stability is that we take care of our monks. We, we, we don't send them to nursing homes. We take care of them as best we can in-house. Sometimes we have to send them uh, if there's... This is a challenge because monks these days just live forever. <laughs> so I guess we, it can be very difficult to take care of monks. And so some communities make the difficult decision to, to have the monks living outside, but then they go and visit them. They go and take care of them somehow. You know, our goal would be to try to keep the, the monks in-house as long as possible, even if they can't get to the office, even if they can't uh, get to chapter meetings, even if, you know, if they can't work anymore. Um, they're, they're still our brothers and they have a lot to offer just by being there, just by uh, being witness to their stability. Like, they, they didn't leave. They stayed, they stuck it out the whole time. Um, something very beautiful about seeing, uh, you know, a monk or a nun who's been in vows for 60, 70 years. And they're still there and they, they maybe, again, can't move very fast, they can't hear very well, but they've stayed faithful to their vows and that's an inspiration for the rest of us. All the stuff they did for those 70 years we're not really focused on. We're more focused on the being of the monk or the nun. That, that they simply have accepted God's grace in their lives and they've accepted it over the course of a long period of time when there have been many opportunities to abandon it. And they've stayed faithful. Uh, so this faithfulness is, again, I think a kind of antidote to... Uh, fearfulness that I'm not doing enough. So simply staying the course, getting to church on Sunday, saying your prayers each day, coming to meetings, staying in touch, whatever it takes. Um, I might not be able to get everything done in between, but that might not be necessary right now as long as I've got a plan to stay connected with the rest of the group. So we are saved not by works, but by incorporation into a body. That's the body of Christ. We grow and develop by our actions. And so our actions are a way of trying to respond to God's grace. But that's, see, as I've just put it that way, I didn't think of this when I was writing this. We're responding to God's grace, not to the provocations of things that are making us anxious. <clears throat> right? So we're responding to the fact that Christ has overcome the world, not that the world is attacking us. We're, you know, if the world attacks us, obviously we're going to respond somehow or other. But it might just be the case that we have to accept being persecuted, for example. So the martyrs, uh, 
sometimes, you know, they would call out the, their persecutors and say, you know, what you're doing is, is really wrong. But it didn't stop them from being martyred. It, it wasn't as if they could stop the persecution by uh, reasoning or, or taking some action against the persecutors. Um, the, you know, persecutions usually fizzle out because uh, eventually you run out of pe people to persecute. <laughs> Um, and it's just not a good way to run things. But uh, so we're saved again by God's grace, by something that we can't control, by something that we can't uh, generate. And so the first thing is to accept that grace, then to try to live out of that rather than noticing the things that are wrong and then seeking for God wherever he is, right? I, I need help. We do, we get those places sometimes, but God is there already. He's, he's already anticipated us. He saw it coming. <laughs> you know, he, he knew this was going to happen to us a long time ago. Um, and uh, he's, he stayed the course with us, so we, it's enough for us to stay the course. Uh, I've noticed uh, there, there are two versions of this. Uh, really, it's kind of a heresy, because it's, it's actually a resurgence of the Pelagian or Gnostic heresy. And what I mean by that is this. Pelagius, according to tradition, there are some, you know, scholars these days argue about everything, so you'll hear people trying to vindicate Pelagius, but the basic problem with Pelagianism as it was received is that Pelagius was a monk from Britain, and uh, his teaching kind of said, you know, you can, you can achieve salvation by being good, okay? And uh, when St. Augustine heard this teaching uh, when he was bishop at Hippo, it made him a little uncomfortable because uh, it seemed to negate God's grace, right? Uh, that uh, if we can save ourselves, we don't need God's grace. So he had a very sophisticated teaching on grace that uh, has been kind of simplified over the years. But the basic idea is um, we're saved out of this world. Within this world, there's, there's just a limit to how much goodness we can achieve because of original sin is how we would talk about it in the West. And uh, it's, it's perfectly consistent with Orthodox teaching, just they would speak differently about the transgression of Adam and Eve that kind of broke this world, it doesn't work anymore. God's recreating the world in Christ, and we are a part of that as, as long as we're baptized, but we can only see it by faith. We can't see it, we can't necessarily point to any one manifestation of, say, the church doing well or badly over here, and automatically say, God's grace is here and it's not there. Uh, it's not acting on a different level. And we don't save ourselves by, we don't, we don't save ourselves. We're saved by God out of this broken world into this world that's being recreated. Uh, so we, we can, again, just kind of uh, accept that and not be too worried about uh, how we're doing. And uh, St. Teresa of Avila, she had famous saying, uh, we're going to make much more progress in the spiritual life by focusing on God's greatness rather than on our poverty. Right? So it's, it's easy to get caught up in our own failures, but it's much more beneficial to get caught up in God's triumphs, <laughs> which are much more impressive. Gnosticism is a trickier one, but I think it's related. And that has to do with, um, uh, you know, uh, let's see, trying to make sure everybody has the right doctrine. That's an important thing, but it's also quite possible that we can be somewhat ignorant of certain aspects of Catholic doctrine and not be damned. 
you know, that, that we may simply not have the time to figure everything out, or uh, uh, it may not be that important to read the catechism, for example, uh, or to read a better example. The catechism is perfectly fine. But, you know, you don't have to know everything that's in the Summa. And if someone tells you, oh, this is wrong because Thomas Aquinas said X, that may be the case, and maybe it's something you can study up on, but it might not be that important. It's more important to try to, again, to allow God's grace, God's charity to have us open to other ideas, have us open to the church's teaching and, and uh, where we might hope it were something different. You know, I think we all have those aspects of the church's teaching where we kind of wish that the catechism said something different. So to open ourselves to that, uh, to be open to change and to allow God to influence us through love is more important than getting all of our thoughts correct. And in fact, we won't get our thoughts correct until we first uh, accept God's grace. That's the first thing. Um, and it's very tempting in our world where we have professors and experts and et cetera, et cetera, to think that that's the way we're saved is by expertise, uh, I guess is what I'm getting at. And to me, it's a kind of Gnosticism. I took issue with uh, an article I read recently that where uh, there was some criticism of the changes in the liturgy for All Souls Day from pre-Vatican II to the current liturgy. Um, there are, you know, there are some changes that are, I would personally undo if it were up to me, but there are other changes that I think were pretty okay. Uh, it's not really my decision. I'm not, I don't make the choice on the liturgy. The problem I had with the article was that the, the idea that was underlying the criticism was that the mass is somehow about teaching. And of course it does teach, but first and foremost, the mass is the sacrifice of Christ through which we perfectly worship and glorify God. So that's the first thing that happens at Mass, is our, our participation in the sacrifice uh, glorifies God, no matter what the readings are, you know, no matter what the prayers are. Christ is, is present, offering himself to the Father, and we are in communion with him. And, the, and nothing can trump that, you know. There, so any of the changes to the prayers and the, the readings may, you know, may or may not have more efficacy for how we understand what's happening. <coughs> but what's happening is what's important, and that's what God is doing, okay? But to, to see the Mass as trying to encapsulate uh, teaching, like the fullness of the faith has to be in the Mass, is and not actually the Church's teaching, and it's a kind of Gnostic idea that what's important is what we understand. Because let's face it, none of us can fully understand the sacrifice of Christ. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a mystery, we say. And it's a mystery that we are freely initiated into, but it's something we'll explore the rest of our lives in eternity. How, how it is that we have been divinized through Christ's sacrifice and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So that's much more important to focus on, receiving Christ in the sacrament. Okay, and then, of course, if the readings are scriptural and the, and the prayers are given to us by the church, they're going to help us somehow or other if we approach it from that right perspective, that it's all about what God is doing. Um, so solidarity, what does it look like to stick together? The classic example of St. Paul, both in Romans and 1 Corinthians, uh, we Christians make up a variegated body. 
Uh, and a body is not one thing, right? It's made up of parts, it's made up of members, and the members have different functions. And therefore we do different things. Like the way we worship God in, in our own particular way is going to be different than the way others do. And that's actually not only okay, it's what's willed by God. So uh, again, I actually have a canonical responsibility to pray the office. You don't, right? Father ever does. Don't. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, the two of us, if you can't get to everything, we're doing it for you. Like I say, that's, that's how, what God has done. He's set us aside. He's consecrated us. Uh, and because we're consecrated this way, uh, and actually we, we Benedictines undergo a solemn consecration, that means that you know, nothing stands above the office for us. We, we, we really should prefer nothing to the work of Christ, says the rule. Um, that would be true for you too, but you haven't been consecrated in the same way. For example, part of our consecration is uh, we can't be forced to do apostolic work outside, okay? We, we actually have the right to refuse any of that. Whereas, say, a diocesan priest, if the bishop says, I want you to do X, he has to do it. But we're not under that obligation precisely to protect the fact that we've been set aside to pray uh, not exactly so you don't have to, but so that somebody's doing it, right? So that some, someone is connecting you to God's grace through the liturgy, even if you can't be there, right? So we are connected that way. You guys can go out and preach the gospel in your workplace. We can't do that. <laughs> we might be able to, under certain circumstances, go out and do something like this. But it's so much more convincing if you go to your place of, of employment or you're at the store and, and somehow or other you witness to Jesus Christ as uh, a barber or as a, a person in the grocery store or whatever it is that you do, um, that's an important part of the church's mission too. And that's exactly what the laity has been commissioned to do according to Vatican II. And it's an age old uh, teaching. It's not, it's not something new. It's something that the, the council fathers wanted to reemphasize uh, we have clerics, we have religious, we have the laity. Each has a different function in the church. And uh, so uh, we're not all responsible for everything. <laughs> and again, I think uh, this is another problem in our American mindset. And again, mind you, I, 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 love, uh, I love our country. And I, you can ask the brothers. I talk about the founding fathers all the time. I think our constitution is fantastic. But there's a democratic mindset that can be a little bit problematic uh, because we're voters and we have to choose our representatives who, who uh, govern us. Um, there's this feeling like we have to be responsible for everything. Like we have to know every single issue. When it comes to the presidential election, we've got to know about foreign policy, about immigration. We've got to know about economics. We've got to know about uh, schools. We've got to know all this stuff. We got to have to know whether the federal government should be involved in schools or if we should have... Uh, who can know all these things? And uh, the problem is, again, this kind of empowers a, a literati as sort of the experts. And it's a kind of Gnosticism again. Plus, it just makes us really anxious. You know, we've got to like know all this stuff and there's so many problems. How are we going to fix all these problems? Answer is, we're not. <laughs> we can't. can't possibly do it. Um, but I think we get into this mindset in the church as well because it's a habit of ours as as. Uh, members of a democracy, democratic republic, that we feel like we have to be responsible in some way for everything. We're not. It's not, it's not true. <laughs> you 
You know, we're responsible for ourselves and we're responsible for our families. Uh, we're responsible to uh, injustice, to participate in the body politic and in the church as our state of life permits. Uh, and, and that's all. Um, then, you know, in prayer, God may reveal to us something else. There may be uh, something on top of that. But, it, it, you know, what God reveals could be something more contemplative. So another favorite story of mine that's in the, uh, the breviary is for the feast day of St. Therese of Lisieux. Uh, of course, she entered the, the Carmel at age 16 and died at 24, I think. Um, she says in, in her life that uh, she, she entered the, the cloister at a very early age. She had a special papal permission to do it. And yet even inside, she was asking God, what's my vocation? What's my vocation? What's my vocation? She wanted to be special. You know, she wanted to do something great for God. And what was revealed to her is that she would be love at the heart of the church. That's it. Okay, so she was going to give herself, do everything in love, her little way. Small things, with lots of love. Uh, in part because of this, she, who never left the cloister after age 16, is the patroness of the missions. Because if there isn't love at the heart of the church, there's no reason to go out and preach the gospel to those who haven't heard it yet. We won't even see why. I, mean, I think this is part of the reason there's confusion in the missions today is we've forgotten the connection to the heart of the church, which is this contemplative understanding that God has already saved us. God is, has already done everything we need to do. It's not up to us. He might call us though and say, by the way, I want you to go on mission. But he might not. He might call us to pray for the missions. That might be it. And that would be helpful. We, we need more of that. So we're not all responsible for everything. Whatever is good for me as a member of the body is good for the whole body. So just as, uh, you know, I, if I'm not taking care of my heart, uh, the rest of my body is going to suffer. You know, if I'm not taking care of eating well, taking care of my digestive system, I'm not going to have as much energy. Uh, if I'm not taking care of my sight, my eyesight, that's going to harm the rest of my body. So in the same way, each one of us, ta by taking care of him or herself, contributes to the health of the body. So if I am working at my own spiritual life, then I'm going to be helping other people in ways that I can't see. You know, it's not always clear how these things fit together. Uh, so each of us has our own job. Uh, last of all, uh, yeah, so the best test of this is not necessarily am I doing more, but am I doing what I'm doing to glorify God and with great love? That's the, that's the test thing. So if I can do small things really intentionally for God's glory and out of love, then the rest is going to eventually become clear. Whereas if I'm trying to do too many things, I might forget to do things with the right intention, the right focus. So last of all, my state of life is not to be seen in isolation from what the rest of the oblates or monks are doing. And so long as we stay connected, uh, and this connection, as I say, could be just praying for each other. That's, that's a connection. It's real. Uh, as long as we stay connected, we're opening ourselves to the Holy Spirit, who is going to be the real director of our souls. He's the one who tells us what, what we should be doing. And we'll know that, that we're following the Holy Spirit so long as we keep this connection. That's going to be a touchstone of whether it's working or not. So thank you very much. That's, that's all I have to say for today. 
Uh, but I thought I'd leave a, a few moments for questions. And I'd like to stop a little early too because I need to speak to a couple of you before I go upstairs. So any questions today on any of what I've said or anything else? You know, yeah. Practical question. What uh, happens with an oblate with his monastery, say if he was an oblate at Blue Cloud Abbey? Yeah, good question. Or St. Benedict's kind of Yep. Yep. The program with the monastery or the program goes away. Right. That, I, you know, I, I might actually ask them that because I, I know monks from those communities, and uh, my presumption would be that the oblate director would have an obligation to try to connect them to another monastery. You know, I'm, I'm not aware of that happening, but that would seem to me to be the the proper thing because, again, the the oblation is a it's a recognized state in the church, and it, it comes. I should mention, you know, it comes not only with obligations, but it comes with privileges too. I mean, you're privileged to. This is something I need to share more with you. You're privileged to receive certain um, uh, indulgences and things like that. So it really would be unfair and unjust to the oblates of those communities if they weren't given the opportunity to translate, transfer their, their uh, oblation to another community. So I presume that's what happened. But I'll ask some of the monks uh, from those communities because I, you know, I know them. And uh, that's not something we talked about when, I, you know, when I've talked to them about their monasteries closing. But that's something that does have to be considered when that yep. happens. Yep. Well, again, you know, uh, the Benedictines of those communities had to transfer their stability to another community, with the exception of there's one monk left at uh, Bennett Lake, canonically speaking. So they, Bennett Lake is still a canonical entity because there's one monk left who hasn't transferred his stability. But the others have simply uh, become members either of conception or gone to another community. And similarly with Blue Cloud, they had the, you can't, again, you can't have a free-floating Benedictine who's not connected to. Uh, and so the current prior at Bennett Lake, which it's now a dependency of conception, is also the administrator of the Abbey, the administrator. So he's also responsible for this one month. <laughs> so, yeah. I was just up there a few weeks ago. That's uh, beautiful. It is, yeah, it is. Yeah. They have a great retreat business going on now. I mean, they, it's, you know, they've really opened the place up and there were just, I don't know, there were about 80 students when we were there and they said between now and Easter they have, like every weekend, um, over half full. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's good. And I'm glad that Conception was able to... Uh, so we'll be going out on weekdays then. Yeah. Don't worry, those 80 people. Yeah. Yeah, these were high school kids from uh, Mount Carmel. Oh, okay. And so that was kind of neat seeing the young, yeah. young people there, you know. Sure. Never know what's going to happen on those retreats. Yeah. So some little seed is planted in the heart of one of those guys. Any other thoughts or questions? I just want to say thanks, that's all. You're welcome. Yeah. Praise God. It's, it's really, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's such a mark of God's grace that you're all here, you know. Uh, that the program continues to attract people. That's a real sign, yeah. sign of life. So Cardinal George used to talk about that. Um, when we would have, every year there's a meeting of religious, and uh, whenever I talk about Cardinal George, I, I keep thinking, I've got to warn the brothers, maybe, maybe it should be edited. I'm not you know, privileged to his estate or something. So, But anyway, I think this is a good thing, so it shouldn't be a problem. Um, at meetings of religious superiors, which we had every year, and we still have with Cardinal Supich, uh, inevitably somebody would stand up and say we ought to have a diocesan committee to do X and you know again to his great credit he would never get 
ruffled by this. He would just say, yeah, it's, you know, anything's possible, but I've got 50,000 committees already. <coughs> and uh, the question I want to pose is, where's the holiness? You know, where are the saints? Can we find them in our midst? Because that's how the Holy Spirit renews the church. It's not by committees. <laughs> so I would say just seeing the, the interest in the Oblate program here, seeing that, the, and, and I should say, we, we had two novices officially begin, but we're working with six or so at distance. We're trying to figure out a way to get them incorporated. This is one of the reasons I've been doing the podcasts, um, because there's so much interest, but um, we just haven't figured out a good way to make sure that we're responsibly forming them, right? That's another reason for the mentoring program is it's another way to help try to catch these people. But the interest is a sign of the Holy Spirit's work in our midst, and so we should really pay attention to it and, and respond with gratitude. So thank you. Uh, great. Well, uh, I'm going to, uh, we'll say our final prayer and wrap up, and then uh, those of you who can join us for prayer for sext, you're welcome to. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.